0: Hello, you're listening to Social Science Talks Science Fiction, a podcast where social scientists, researchers, theorists and philosophers discuss the themes and works of science fiction. This podcast is recorded in the basement of the International Politics Department at Aberystwyth University and is available free under a Creative Commons license. If you'd like to see or hear more from us, check out the website at socialsciencetalks.wordpress.com, subscribe on iTunes, or tweet at social underscore sci-fi. We hope you enjoy the program. Uh, hello, we're still here at Bisa. Uh This time I'm sitting down with Matt Davies from Newcastle University. His paper today is entitled Beyond the Dolls of Dollhouse. Uh, Matt, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Nice to meet you, Matthew.
0: So tell us about your paper and how it pertains to Dollhouse.
1: Okay. Um, the paper comes out of um, a series of discussions I started having with a new member of staff who joined us recently, Amanda Chisholm. Uh, whose work is on uh, security, private military security companies, and the gender analysis of these things. My background is in political economy, um, and I have written on Joss Whedon before because I have an article I wrote about Buffy the Vampire Slayer and the way that uh, Buffy presented a particular kind of argument about what work is. And work seems to me to be kind of an, an invisible concept in political economy, so I turned to popular culture as a way to find an argument that wasn't really being developed within my own field. Um, So that piece, and then Amanda's interest in in, uh, gender issues, also led us to start talking about, one, how we both liked Joss Whedon, and then, two, how it seemed that a lot of people had reacted to Dollhouse in a really uh, negative way, as uh, picking up on the tropes of prostitution and human trafficking, as if it weren't a critique of those things. Um, And so we thought, well, maybe there's something here to think about. And and, um, so we watched the series, and we wrote a paper.
0: Okay, so... Dollhouse, I mean, as you say, has sort of very obvious critiques to immediately make about gender and how we perceive it. Now, the the obvious point would be that it's making a point of what you perceive as fantasy to the point where a lot of the the fantasies that the customers create are actually really cheesy. They're racing motorcycles into nightclubs, and, but that doesn't stop the program being fundamentally unsettled yeah. and does that become an asset to you, or is it one of the program's problems? No, no, what does that do no, for the audience?
1: Well, I, I like the way that in a lot of his work, Joss Whitten is, is interested in, in, in destabilizing some of our assumptions about things, about genre and Firefly, for example, about what the nature of the, the vulnerable blonde is, in Buffy the vampire slayer, so, yeah, right? Um, and it seems to me that what, what, the, what the key disruption and this was the, I should credit Amanda as well for this insight, the key disruption that takes place in Dollhouse has to do with the, the way that it's actually a neoliberalism. It may not seem really obvious to start with, but effectively when you're looking at people whose subjectivity is so infinitely flexibilized in order to be able to be there to, one, develop their own responsibility for that flexibilization, so Echo's development through the series as somebody who could actually be not only the subject that overcomes these imposed identities, but also that that capacity being cultivated by the corporation itself for for its own purposes. that seemed to me to be a really interesting reflection on what, what neoliberalism says a subject is and then how then do you work through that politically
0: Is there not an argument to be made though that Echo never escapes that because her independence from the dollhouse is being cultivated by another male character in the form of Alpha
1: well, is Alpha Cultivator, or does, you know, does she manage to rebel against the, the uh, effort of Alpha to put her into her place? Um, the wonderful scene in the end of the season one where, uh, where she turns around and whacks him with an iron bar on the head says that, well, no, I'm not just here to play out your fantasy either. And Alpha's development is interesting as well, because you know, as he becomes a character who's capable of managing the many voices in his head, he stops being a serial killer, and he starts actually caring for the vulnerable. Um, that wonderful scene again, whereas uh, what took you so long, we've been waiting for you. Right? Um it isn't. It isn't really. I would have thought when you said that I was more afraid that you were going to say that it was either about Boyd Langton, who's there trying to cultivate this, or that it was about Ballard, who's supposed to be the white knight. And in Langton, I think it's easier to say no, that's not what's going on because she most obviously is able to overcome him and Rossum Corporation. It's more tricky with Ballard, I know, because she uh, she interjects him right literally. <laughs> but then at the same time, she's not the only character. So what she does interestingly to me is present one answer to the question of what kind of subject moves through new level subjectivity. The larger answer has to do with the way that the subject isn't really just located in any particular self. So what she really discovers is the social relations around this. So the different people who have different solutions to, to what the imprinting has done to them. Victor is one solution, I'm going to embrace the tech and fight, Sierra is another solution, I'm going to remove myself from the in tech uh, and kind of go to this idyll. Uh, and then they even reconcile their differences, so difference still matters in this way that... So the overcoming becomes sort of a social uh, series of affective field where people are connecting to each other rather than being responsibilized entrepreneurs investing in their own human capital. So.
0: One might be initially surprised that you can generate ideas of political economy and neoliberalism from the the fantasies and science fictions of Joss Whedon. What is it that a lot of scholars, because popular um, culture is becoming more popular as a way of talking about academic scholarship, what is it that we as scholars are getting out of pop culture, we're not getting out of other areas?
1: Well, I think that's actually the, that's the large question for us right now, I think. So I I don't really like using straw men or whipping boys, but I think there's an example of how not to do it, which is really prominent in the field, which is what Dan Dresner does with zombies.
0: We did a podcast on Dan Dresner a couple of months ago. Yeah, so yes,
1: I should actually go back and listen to it. And I don't, did you talk to him? I would be really curious uh, to hear. he listen. tweeted
0: us, but we've not heard uh, what he thinks
1: yet. So, I mean, one of the things about that is, is I think, again, pedagogically, the intent was really clear. I'm going to try and make these difficult and obscure theories of international politics accessible to students. They know something about zombies, so I can use that as a trope to try and illustrate what's going on. I disagree with that approach really profoundly. Dennis doesn't ask what does the zombie want, in fact he doesn't really know what popular culture is. So we don't, we don't, we lose the opportunity to see how in this other idiom or in these other genres ideas can be generated which destabilize the basic assumptions we want to make about what we think international is, what we think politics is, where we think those things can possibly take place.
0: I mean one of the problems we had with Dresner is that because of his desire to talk about one thing and make it relevant via pop culture the transitions between him talking about zombies and talking about IR occur with an almost audible clunk. <laughs> and so we compared it to Max Brooks's World War Z, which, of course, is just this suspended work of fiction and yet does a much better job of explaining politics in a way that the textbook did not. Now... I, at the time, ascribed that phenomenon to the fact that he was able to escape the bonds of theory and just talk about what he wanted to talk about, which was humans. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Would you agree with that conception of popular culture, or do we need more rigor than I can provide? I
1: think I would disagree with that conception of theory. I think that's where we'd maybe depart. I think, actually, you're right about it as a popular culture writer. And, I mean, we have, again, in science fiction, you have fantastic examples of people who were able to understand what the cultural idiom was, what the genre is or genres actually, so I'm thinking of somebody like J.G. Ballard who um, was able to write quasi-scientific papers about games to be able to, um, why I want to fuck Ronald Reagan, sorry, I don't know if that goes over the front. No, we're allowed
0: to swear you know, in, the, in the services yeah. of humour. Okay,
1: <laughs> or, or, and, and to cite, to quote titles, I hope. So, yes. you know, in, in this particular piece, you know, he, he writes it as a report on a psychological experiment, and he writes it in the idiom and in the language of a person writing a scientific report. But his larger points are about the culture and about politics, about about how images uh, come to frame the ways we can think about things. And you know, Ballard was somebody who, again, a very talented writer, a very visionary science fiction writer, who can tell us a lot about politics in the contemporary setting. And also, you know, maybe less obviously about international politics, but what is international politics, but a particular answer to the question about what do we think politics is. So when you bring a political critique in, which you can easily do through any kind of culture, artifact, then you are able to either question or destabilize all of the assumptions that we may take on about, well, what international politics is about, diplomacy, it is, but that might not be the whole of that universe. I'd
0: certainly agree with that as a useful method to understand and learn, but I think it's fundamentally still the case that a lot of people are importing pop culture artifacts into their curriculums because they think students will engage with that. Whereas other scholars like, say, Patrick Jackson are saying, no, no, we're doing fundamentally more. What's your experience at Newcastle with pop culture?
1: Well, I mean, it's a very good news and a somewhat more troubling news scenario. The the good news is is we've we've done an awful lot with it. We have a Master of Arts in politics and popular culture. Um, It regularly recruits students. We have a a compulsory module which we do via video link co-taught with a, a Cognitive. Uh, course that's taught at York University in Boston, Toronto. So our colleague David Mutimer works with me and Simon Kropot and Kyle Grayson to, to co-teach this. And it brings in students from across the ocean. So we have an interesting way of interacting, mediated through the video links. And we do use it to sort of try to do what we're talking about here, to say, let's give you an artifact, let's say a war memorial. Um, and let's read that artifact and see what can we figure out about how world politics is produced through our engagements with these various artifacts um, or a rap song or Breaking Bad. I mean, we, there's all kinds of... We, through the semester we bring in all kinds of artifacts. We encourage the students to bring them in as well. And the trick is then to, well, first of all, to respect that cultural studies and popular culture has its own sets of methods, its own epistemologies, which you have to master as well. You can't simply take them as given. But that doing so also enables us to go back and learn and critique further the the methods and the epistemologies and the ontologies presented to us by our home field of international relations. Okay. And it's a good. It's a, that's the good news. The bad news is, of course, is that's a big ask for most students. Yes. <laughs> and so we do struggle a little bit. And you know, I, I'd say I would say we've been lucky because we've had students who've tried to rise to the occasion. Um, working with York has been very exciting because in the in the UK most PhDs. Studies don't require subject specific coursework yeah. beyond the MA uh, where you learn the research training, whereas in Canada they do. So you get a mix of students in Canada with between PhD and MA students. So you have people who are maybe slightly more prepared in the classroom who can help lead the discussions so and don't just leave it to us as the module leaders to do it. So it's, a, it's yeah, no, it's a, I started to say bad news, but actually, no, I think it's all quite good news.
0: <laughs> so return to Joss Whedon yeah. and Dollhouse. Um, ostensibly Echo represents one of his most direct attempts at the strong female character capital S, capital F, capital C (laughs) you could characterise however there's a pattern that emerges in Joss Whedon's work of the idea of what someone termed the Troubled Waif this is Echo, this is at times Buffy, Willow Um, this is most definitely Sky in season one of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. although since his brother took over the show she's changed this is the Scarlet Witch of Age of Ultron this is, of course, River Tam. Probably the character yeah, who represents yeah. that the most. Now, when you compare the characters side by side, the troubled wave trope seems to present a very limited, if not negative, view of gender mm-hmm. in John Whedon's characters. Would you agree with that characterization?
1: Tricky question, because I think when you say characterization, maybe part of what we're doing is, is we're actually taking the trope on its own terms. I don't think you can do that with Whedon, because one of the things that's really clear about all of his series, the ones that work and the ones that don't work, is, is that they're not just about the, the, the moment, they're not just about that in any individual episode, but we have something which is missing, I think, oftentimes in a lot of, um, say, popular culture and television, but the things that we all love and the things we all hold on to do this when Joss Whedon's the master of it is, is character development. So you have a troubled waif, but that troubled waif doesn't stand still. She develops, she interacts with others, she fails, she's pathological, she overcomes, you know, and she shows different possibilities, different possible outcomes. So sometimes, you know, sometimes it's like, okay, yes, enough of it already. You know, Willow, for example, when she becomes a bad witch, it was kind of a telegraph, not really that interesting. But then you look over the seven series of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And even though it feels like on year-on-year-on-year, on year, on year, we still have the same character with Michelle Gell- Sarah Michelle Gellar and the way she's portraying it, when you look at season one and you look at season seven, That's you see an enormous development of that character. I uh,
0: yeah. Suppose the advantage Whedon gains with Buffy and Angel is that he gets the full plot arc out of them. Yeah. And so we see Willow, and of course from Angel, Fred, you could argue is another example of this quote. You, trope. You get more development, whereas dollhouse got two seasons... Firefly got one on a film, yeah, yeah. Um, he only got one season out of um, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. before he left it, and with Age of Ultron, it's not that he doesn't have time to develop the character, it's that the version of the character he's given, the Scarlet Witch, has all her interesting Roma, Roma-Jewish background chopped off for legal reasons. Right. So you could argue that his success in doing that with Willow is more evidential of what we would actually do over a longer arc. He just never seems to get a longer yeah. arc.
1: Well, there was a, I don't know if I'm going to mention it in the presentation today, but as we were writing the paper, one of the things we had to laugh at as we realized the irony was that the Rossum Corporation is in the business of selling fantasy, but that's not its purpose. And I thought, hey, how could that not be read as a comment on Fox? <laughs> 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 yeah. So I think Joss Whedon's you know, epic struggles with his networks to try and give him a chance to tell the story across a full arc. And, you know, I don't know why he hasn't, or, or it would be interesting, I, I don't know him, I'd love to meet him someday. it would be interesting to know whether the opportunity to do this in another network, HBO gave Breaking Bad five seasons, am I right? Yeah. I can't remember, but I mean, you know, the, the, the possibility to develop a, a longer story arc seems to be something which the kind of, to DVD, to, to the binge-watching kinds of programs that are being produced, in, like Mad Men and whatnot, that, that opportunity appears to be there, and I think, you know. again, you, you have the chance to develop the character, you've got a lot of things to think about, and even if it isn't, again, to, to our original point, even if it isn't something which is saying, this is how you need to change your thinking about international politics, it gives you a place to stand to begin to ask those questions, right, Then because then you can come to a student and say, you know, how does this, well, like Buffy's an example, you know, River Tam is an example, oh my goodness, I mean, in Firefly, You know, you really do have something like, you know, the genetically modified soldiers who become weavers, you've got frontier issues, you've got sovereignty issues. All that stuff is really present, which could be be very easily taken to a first year, you know, international politics module and say, what do you think sovereignty means here, right?
0: Uh, One of the things that, and this came up in a very recent recording, one of the things with Firefly is that it becomes tricky to talk about ideas of sovereignty when you're meant to so like the heroes who culturally actually are the villains because mm. they're the confederacy yeah. and the alliance of the union yeah. and it's <laughs> I, I feel somehow that the, the ability to critique Firefly is limited not just by its truncated run yeah. but the, the alliance doesn't get a fair shake which is fine <laughs> I guess but
1: yeah or maybe the union got too fair a shake. You never know, right? I mean, this is um, true. Yeah. yeah. So, so I mean, as much as the Confederacy deranges us a little bit, you know, I'm not so sure that that was a good guys versus bad guys war either. Right? Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay, so that should about
1: wrap it up. Uh, oh, Matt Davies, thank my you very much. pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, I really enjoyed.